So the last verse that Venerable Children left us with talked about cultivating the joy of isolation or solitude as a means by which we can then cultivate bodhicitta, generate concentration, and have a very powerful mind to realize the nature of reality, to attain Buddhahood. And this topic of isolation or solitude has been weaved throughout the whole chapter that we've spent the last four months exploring, the chapter on meditation. And we've had various discussions about what this means. And I was reflecting that um, on two kind of, you could say disasters or um, things that have afflicted the world where it was very clear that isolation is not just removing ourselves from the world. With COVID, we've seen how the pandemic created a lot of isolation for people, cut off from social networks, from sources of income, from family, friends, meaningful activities. And this isolation hasn't brought necessarily clarity of mind or happiness, but rather spikes in mental health problems, substance abuse, domestic violence, and so forth. So with a mind unprepared to go into isolation, not knowing how to work with the afflictions as they arise or to be a source of one's own well-being, physical isolation can have quite harmful results. And this similar thing happened in 2011 when I was living in New Zealand and a big earthquake hit Christchurch killed hundreds of people, toppled many buildings, the liquefaction, the destruction went for miles throughout the whole city. And again, hundreds, thousands of people were isolated, but it didn't bring spiritual realization or happiness necessarily. Again, it brought fear, depression, anxiety, turning for crutches such as alcohol or gambling or other things to try and hold on to some sense of peace, happiness, direction. In this chapter, we're privileged to have heard Chantideva's advice about how to prepare our minds to go into physical and mental isolation so that we can cultivate a kind, wise, loving heart and to go deeply into our spiritual practice so we can attain the realizations that we need in order to rid ourselves of all obscurations to cultivate all good qualities and to eventually become Buddhas. And we do this explicitly because we see the pain that others experience. 
not only the outright ouch kind of pain, but also as um, we're hearing in last night's teachings, the dukkha of change, the unsatisfactoriness of these pleasant feelings that just don't last. And having a body and mind under the control of afflictions and karma that is like a wound just waiting to be bumped. So let's rejoice the opportunity we have now to refresh our understanding and go deeper into exploring the verses of Shantideva on how to abandon attachment, cultivate physical and mental isolation so that we can transform ourselves into wish-fulfilling jewels for all sentient beings so we can all attain the peace and happiness that we seek. Okay. So I kind of, I wanted to pick up from where Venerable Chodan left us in the last teaching, because that was at quite a good point to loop back right around to the start. Um, and also frame how chapter eight um, is divided or progresses through various ideas. Um, and that really helps us understand where Shantideva is leading us to through the various points of advice that he's being given. He's been giving. And so the whole chapter, I think it's one of, it is either the longest or one of the longest chapters in the whole book with a hundred, um, almost 200 verses. And it's split into three parts according to the outlines, which are very helpful. And the first part is just two verses. And that's on the advice of why it's necessary to cultivate concentration or serenity specifically. And then there are the next 86 verses that are on about abandoning the discordant class to serenity, which basically means abandoning everything that gets in the way of us being able to con cultivate concentration. And that's where we've been for the last four months in that chunk of 86 verses that we've been going through very, very slowly and in depth with Venerable Children, um, largely focusing on how to abandon attachment, which is one of the main things that gets in our way of cultivating concentration. When our mind is reaching out, wanting to grab things of desire, we can't settle down and focus the mind and go inwards. And then the last um, part, of the part of the chapter, which is the next hundred verses that we're just about to go into, is about how to actually cultivate concentration, specifically through bodhicitta. Um, most of these hundred verses are about the equalizing and exchanging self and others method of generating bodhicitta. Um, yeah. And so where we left off last week was that the last um, was two verses away from the end of part B, that whole 86 verses on um, abandoning the discordant class to serenity or abandoning those things that get in the way of cultivating concentration before we actually go into developing it. And Shantideva, basically in the last verses that we had, is summarizing all of the advice he's been giving up to this point. And so what is the crux of that advice? As cultivating a joy for isolation. And in verse 85 and 86, he says, Having in this way developed solution with desire, I should generate joy for solitude. 
The fortunate ones stroll in peaceful forests, devoid of disputes and disturbing, disturbing conceptions. They live in joyful houses of vast flat stones, cooled by the sandal-scented moonlight, fanned by the peaceful silent forest breeze, thinking of what is of benefit to others. So this is part of, um, yeah, four ending summarizing verses about what we need to do in order to then generate um, bodhicitta. Uh, and isolation is key here. But what does that mean? And I found it really helpful the last four months to have the various conversations in class and also the conversations outside of class about what does it mean, especially with some of what, what Venerable termed as the romantic ideas that we might have about going up into a hut somewhere and, and staying for a three-year retreat and what the results that that may or may not bring. So I wanted to take a look at the first 37 verses of this chapter, um, looking at them in kind of largish chunks, because when I find that when we, I read them, we read them in that way, you can get a flow, the sense of the flow or the repetition and, and the momentum that Shantideva builds in these verses. Um, that gives a different feel to being so zoned in onto one verse or one line of one verse. And to look at the various ways that he's been pointing out to us why we need to cultivate isolation, what does that mean and what it doesn't mean, and how we can all implement this no matter what kind of lifestyle we lead, whether we're monastics or not, whether we're working full time or not, um, whether we're in a romantic relationship or not, there's all, there are different ways that we can engage with this idea of isolation that can help us um, really prioritize what's important in life and then use our precious human life in a very meaningful way. Um, and to, right from the start, uh, frame this in the context of generating bodhicitta. Um, that some of these verses um, almost, uh, they come at looking at sentient beings in a very different way. And Venable's been repeating this again and again, that uh, this is the eighth chapter out of 10 chapters. Um, so this is towards the end of um, having done a whole lot of work beforehand. Where, and we've been viewing sentient beings in a very different way before this. We've been seeing them as our kind mother sentient beings, as those who give us everything that we need in order to live, those um, whom we practice patience in relation to, those who are our spiritual companions, those who are wanting to develop compassion for. But in this chapter, we're seeing them in kind of a different light, and it can be a bit jarring um, because we're wanting to see the faults of attachment very, very clearly and how that acts itself out in relation to other beings and how they act out their attachment also and the mess that that brings. Um, so you just need to see that very clearly and also see that we're wanting to see ourselves and others in this particular light to help us distance ourselves from the attachment so we can circle right back around and be of benefit to them. That this uh, perspective of I'm getting clear about the faults of attachment is so that we can become Buddhists, so that we can be spontaneously, effortlessly engaged constantly in being a benefit to others. So the first two verses, which form part A um, of this chapter, is about the need um, to develop concentration. Verse 1, having developed enthusiasm in this way, I should place my mind in concentration, 
for the person whose mind is distracted dwells between the fangs of the afflictions. Verse 2, but through, soli- but through solitude of body and mind, no distractions will occur. Therefore, I should forsake the worldly life and completely discard distorted conceptions. So right away, uh, when Venerable was teaching this, she clarified that this isolation or solitude or separation means separating ourselves from the eight worldly concerns. Um, so that we're not controlled by attachment or by um, grasping at trying to achieve the happiness of just this life. So it's not um, just abandoning friends, family, or things like that. It's about abandoning the, the harmful states of mind that bring us and others harm. And a lot of this um, can center around uh, guarding the senses and taking a lot of care about the different environments that we put ourselves into. Um, because of how that influences how we think, speak, and act. And this relates quite well to the idea of the factors that give rise to the afflictions. And as talked about in the Lam Room, about how there are six factors that give rise to the afflictions. And it's these things that we um, can say that we want to isolate ourselves from or protect ourselves against so that yeah, we utilize the precious opportunity that we have right now, the physical ability, the mental clarity that we have to practice the Dharma to create the causes for happiness. And so um, reflecting this, relating this back to the idea of isolation. So the first factor that gives rise to the afflictions is contact with the object. And uh, Venerable explicitly said, you know, when we, we are not able to sever our attachment, when, we're, when we are in the middle of everything that we're attached to, so here we want to um, gener- uh, cultivate some isolation from our objects of attachment so that we're not constantly bumping up against them, which triggers our attachment, our greed, our anger, our jealousy, our pride, different things like that. Um, I'm sure that we um, all have our own objects that we know that when we come into contact with them, it's quite hard to um, not have our afflictions triggered. And another factor that gives rise to the afflictions is habit. Um, And this is closely related to coming into contact with the object. But there's, again, there's certain objects or people or ideas or things that we come into contact with. And through the force of habit, we relate to them in a certain way. Um, Yeah, I know that there are certain foods that if they're on the food line, I will quite consistently either take more than I actually need or more than it's my fair share because I'm out of attachment, because I think that my happiness exists outside of myself. Um, That might not be the most harmful thing that I'm doing, but it's consistent and it's humbling. Um, And then there with other sentient beings, I know that, you know, coming into with certain friends um, or family members, I will speak and act in a certain way. And it doesn't really matter how long I haven't seen them for, but when we come in together, it just unfolds in a certain way. Um, Yeah, speaking and and talking about things that aren't necessarily helpful um, or conducive to subduing the mind. Another factor that gives rise to the afflictions is media. Um, And this can be uh, the news, it can also be songs or different literature that we read. And again, coming into contact with different images or sounds can really spark attachment or aversion and um, 
you know, there's been a ongoing conversation for many years now between some of us here about how the way the image of body is beautiful and how that has just been relentlessly pumped out through the media um, and particularly what type of body is beautiful can really trigger a lot of self-hatred, attachment, attachment to our own bodies and how it looks to others' bodies and how they look. And then causing us to worry and get caught up in, in things that really aren't a good use of our mental space. The fourth factor that gives rise to the afflictions is the seeds of the afflictions. Um, and so that, for me here, just means that we're all vulner vulnerable to um, the afflictions arising and again and again as long as we haven't realized emptiness and start to cut them from the root. And so here again is where isolation um, from the afflictions is so important in that we're all vulnerable at any moment for these afflictions to arise if we come into contact with certain objects um, that will spark that. So how, how are we protecting ourselves so that um, we're not nourishing these seeds of the afflictions but are rather nourishing um, positive, helpful states of mind? And uh, the fifth factor that gets rise to the afflictions is what's called bad friends which here doesn't mean that they are evil people with horns on their heads, but rather those friends who are engaged in things that aren't so helpful for practice. Maybe they drink and drug, or maybe they um, want us to spend a lot of time engaged in activities that uh, might not even be non-virtuous, but just aren't a good use of our time when we consider that we only have 24 hours each day and we don't know when we're going to die. Um, yeah, so this, and this is, um, something that we'll be touched on again and again in these first 37 verses of looking at, you know, what people are we surrounding ourselves with? What are they engaged in? How are they leading us to engage or not engage in virtue? And then how can we cultivate healthy relationships so that we are caring deeply about them, um, about every single sentient being, but but engaging with them in a way that is helpful for them and also helpful for ourselves within the framework of our spiritual practice. So, yeah, these first two verses kind of circle back to using our precious human life. And uh, Venerable emphasized this point when she taught it, and it links up quite nicely to the verse that um, Yeshi Yeshi told us yesterday. It would be good to recite each morning or each day from from. Uh, Chandrakirti is engaging in the middle way, verse uh, 2.5, where it says, If, when free and living with favorable conditions, we do not retain this status we enjoy, we will fall into the abyss and be at the mercy of others. What could enable us to rise up again from such a state? So, yeah, these first two verses about the need to cultivate concentration, but also the need to use the opportunity we have now um, to use our precious human life um, as best we can. Um, and this leads us next into uh, part B, the next um, 86 verses, of some, of, some of which we'll look at today, about how to um, abandon those things that get in the way of cultivating concentration, um, and specifically the faults of attachment. Um, yeah, and Gautz of Jane, the outline uh, terms this abandoning the bustle of the world, which again, this use of language so kind of 
juxtaposes it with the idea of going into isolation, abandoning Basel, going into isolation. And this doesn't necessarily mean physical isolation, but how, again, we isolate ourselves from the afflictions. Um, yeah. So verse three and four, uh, looking at giving up attachment to this life. Verse three reads, worldly life is not forsaken because of attachment to people and due to craving for material gain and the like. Therefore, I should entirely forsake these things, for this is the way in which the wise behave. So again, it's clear that Shantideva is pointing out that attachment here is a problem. It's not the people. Um, yeah, so we're looking at sentient beings in, in a particular way here for the purpose of, of giving up attachment. Um, yeah. And then verse four, um, having understood that disturbing conceptions or afflictions are completely overcome by superior insight and endowed with serenity, first of all, I should search for serenity. This is achieved with, with, through the genuine joy of those unattached to the world. Summary, we'll take a look at the next few verses that look at the disadvantages of attachment. And particularly here, looking at how attachment just cannot be satisfied. Um, there's no way to quench the thirst of desire. And um, we need to see this both in ourselves and also in those um, that we care about and all other sentient beings who want something from us, who want us to engage in, in certain things with them, for them. So I'll read verses five to eight. Because of the obsession one impermanent being has for other impermanent beings, they will not see their beloved ones again for many thousands of lives. Not seeing them, I am unhappy, and my mind cannot be settled in equipoise. Even if I see them, there is no satisfaction, and as before, I am tormented by craving. Through being attached to living beings, I am completely obscured from the perfect reality. My disillusion with cyclic existence perishes, and in the end, I am tortured by sorrow. By thinking only of them, this life will pass without any meaning. For the more impermanent friends and relatives will destroy, will just even destroy the Dharma, which leads to permanent liberation. So the analogy that Venerable touched on when she was teaching these verses was about drinking salt water, about how we can pursue sense pleasure, but it's never enough. We have some and then we want more. We drink that salt water and our thirst just isn't quenched. And so here, Shanti Davis reminds us of the antidote to attachment that's quite powerful as being of impermanence. Um, to see things clearly as they are and not trying to hold on to um, impermanent sentient beings as things that will give us lasting happiness, companionship, pleasure. And so we can see here that... Um, yeah, our bodies, our wealth, family and friends, they will all perish. And coming back to kind of what we know from the nine-point death meditations, that what matters at death is the practice that we have done, the virtuous seeds that we planted on our mind stream, the things that we've habituated ourselves to. Um, but when we're distracted by praise, pleasure, reputation, social status, career, then our impermanent friends will destroy the Dharma. How? Because of what we do to please them. 
um, yeah, to befriend people, to have them like us, um, to even fill work obligations to have to get that promotion that we want. We'll do all sorts of kinds of non-virtuous things um, for things that we will leave behind when it comes to the point of death. So, yeah, and even even if things aren't non-virtuous explicitly, um, we have to ask ourselves how how are we using our time and is that creating causes for awakening, for liberation, for happiness? Because there's a lot of things that we can do that might be kind of ethically neutral but just are a waste of time. And I was quite, um, these points kind of came to life a little bit in the last week when a few of us went up to Portland to see a friend who's dying who, um, I think he's in his late 70s and yeah, diagnosed with terminal cancer that's in four, at least four different places in his body. So don't really know how much longer he'll last. But we went to see him and yeah, it was just on display of the pain, physical pain that he was in that was quite obvious, um, looking quite different, the body really deteriorating visibly so. The pain that was on his wife's face as she had these stream of guests coming basically to say goodbye. Um, and his pain that kind of knowing, acknowledging verbally, like, you know, this is really hard for her, but what can I do? It's like, you can't. Um, and then contrasting that where we were staying, um, the house that we were staying in for the few days was at um, some young friends of the Abbey, kind of newlywed with a new baby, everything kind of picture perfect right now. Um, it was very comfortable, very nice. So we had the view of what looks nice now, fresh, young, 30s, 40s, new baby, good burgeoning career. And then we had this view of what is at the end of life, where these fresh, healthy bodies, sometimes at the earlier in life, fail us. And we have to leave our husbands, our wives, our children, even if we're in harmonious, loving, caring relationships. And what does that look like? And how are we going to actually work with that? Are we cultivating the causes and conditions now to be able to deal with that separation in a way where we can die peacefully, happily even? Um, or are we caught up so much in the pleasure of this life, in pleasing other beings, in doing things for our friends and family that we kind of know isn't quite right or not what we want, but we do it to please them. And then is that something that we're going to regret at the end of our life? There's so much in these verses to contemplate about how we relate to ourselves and others and what we're prioritizing in our lives. So then we move into a section where it builds on this um, by exploring the idea of childish sentient beings. Um, and I wanted to uh, frame this in that these verses are not just for monastics. Um, and some of these verses might seem quite harsh or be uh, directed towards really reframing um, how we relate to others. But it's for everyone, no matter whether we're in um, lay life or not, or in marriage or romantic relationships or not, because the, the problem that Shantideva is pointing out isn't the childish sentient beings themselves. 
is the attachment that uh, these childish sentient beings have and also our attachment to them. And it reminded me of the verse that Shantideva says in chapter 6, where he says, if we're going to be angry with anything, don't be angry at sentient beings, but be angry with the ignorance, anger, or attachment that is wielding them around like, or like a um, puppet on a string. So in the situation, again, Shantideva is pointing out, you know, we're trying to see the faults of attachment, not saying that sentient beings are harmful, bad, inappropriate, evil, or harming us, but it's the attachment that is driving them to engage in all sorts of silly, harmful ways that we'll explore. Um, that's what we're wanting to get distance from, at least mentally, if not physically. Um, yeah, and to, yes, be cautious and wary of our own attachment, the attachment of others, and to almost kind of see the comicalness of how we act under its influence. So I'll read verses 9 to 14. If I behave in the same way as the childish, I shall certainly proceed to lower realms. And if I am led there, led there by those unequal to the noble ones, what is the use of entrusting myself to the childish? One moment they are friends, and in the next instant they become enemies. Since they become angry even in joyful situations, it is difficult to please ordinary beings. They are angry when something of benefit is said, and they also turn me away from what is beneficial. If I do not listen to what they say, they become angry and hence proceed to lower realms. They are envious of superiors, competitive with equals, arrogant towards inferiors, conceited when praised, and if anything unpleasant is said, they become angry. Never is any benefit derived from the childish. Through associating with the childish, there will certainly ensue unwholesomeness, such as praising myself and belittling others, and the, discussing the joys of cyclic existence. Others and I relying upon each other in this way will bring about nothing but ruin. They will not enact my purpose, and I too will not enact their purpose. So that's kind of the craziness of attachment writ large in these verses about how, yeah, we create messes um, in our lives pursuing what we want to the detriment of others. Um, yeah, getting angry even in joyful situations. And I'm sure from our own experience, we can see how others have treated us in this way or behave in this way. You know, others have responded angrily when we've tried to help them with good intentions or others have been jealous towards ourselves or others at, because of the success of someone else. We can kind of see how ridiculous that is because their jealousy isn't actually helping them get what they want. It's just causing them pain. Or how others are thickly stuck in their pursuit of worldly gain, even at the cost of almost everything, their family, their friends, their career, their peace of mind, their physical health. But what about us? And this is the point where Venerable asks us to you know, turn these verses right back to look about what we are doing. Um, and to look at the way she phrased it was, look at the amount of negative karma we create just by doing what ordinary beings do in terms of climbing, climbing the career ladder or pursuing sense pleasure. Um, yeah, I was... Uh, 
don't know how this came out recently, but reflecting on my time living in New Zealand where I was a chaperone to um, some international students for a local high school. And the lower, the South Island of New Zealand where I was living is kind of an adventure sports central of the world. Um, and so these kids were going around, on, a, on a, all of us on a bus, kind of traveling around to these different locations and touching other different kind of adventure sports areas. So we went water, white water rafting and, and rock climbing or different things like that. And then also there was uh, skydiving and maybe bungee, bungee jumping, I'm not quite sure. Yes, bungee jumping as well. Um, and the being a chaperone, I didn't really get paid much, but we just got everything for free. And I was there with a friend. And um, it got to the end of the trip where we're in Queenstown and it was kind of this opportunity to go bungee jumping and skydiving. And we kind of just looked at each other and went, no, <laughs> so I'm not risking my life for that um, because accidents do happen. And I've been bungee jumping a few years beforehand and it terrified the hell out of me um, so that I didn't want to go there again. Um, but I had never been skydiving before and I'd always kind of romanticized it and, and um, it had some appeal. But that moment when I was, I think, just just beginning to learn a little bit about Dharma, um, and I was just like, this is not worth it. Um, and, you know, the kids went up, they came back down, they were fine. But I think a few days after that, there was an accident where, where a few people died. Um, and it's just the crazy things that ordinary people do with their lives to get pleasure, um, and how too frequently it ends in uh, sorrow, in grief. And that's a kind of an extreme example, but there's uh, many others. And it was interesting also driving around um, Spokane a few days ago um, to take one of the cats into the vet. And Venerable Semkin and I saw, I think, four or five different signs, um, many duplicates of them, but four, four, different, four or five different companies or brands advertising cannabis because it's now um, legal. And it was just shocking to see, like, you know, very frequently all throughout um, the trip into uh, the south side of the city, just these um, huge billboards advertising weed. Um, and then also a few, a few other um, billboards uh, for addiction treatment. And just those two going together, it's like, wow. I think the slogan of one of the billboards was, uh, there's no future in addiction. But then, we, then there was more signs though advertising about how to get high um, with all different kinds of um, advertising to appeal to the different audiences um, that would be interested. So quite different themes and colors and imagery. Was, um, one of them I didn't even, took me a while to realize that it was advertising weed because of how it was called and, and visualized. Um, so again, these ways where, you know, in taking intoxicants isn't naturally negative, but how often does it lead to us engaging in non-virtuous actions or just wasting our time, wasting the clarity of mind that we have that we could use to gain wisdom, to be a benefit to others? Um, yeah. And... Yeah, with these verses that are asking us to see the childishness of ourselves and others and how we 
get angry when things of benefit are said or how others lead us away from what is beneficial, how we compete with others, um, and how, uh, yeah, ignorance, attachment, pride arise. Um, and I'll encourage us to take, to not leave this as theoretical, but to see how this applies to our own lives and specifically how we compromise our own values to please others. Um, and to see that in the, in the framework of being childish, both on our part and also the part of others who are trying to please. Um, and in Gelo Grimbache's commentary to this um, chapter, he also uh, really encouraged us to look at what kind of role model are we for people? Um, like how are we the childish people that have in, involve others in things that bring them sorrow? that waste their time, that cause them, um, or it doesn't cause them, but to encourage them to create negativity. So uh, a while ago, I talked about how, specifically with verse 14 here, like others and I relying upon each other in this way, through attachment, will bring about nothing but ruin. They will not enact my purpose, and I too will not enact their purpose. And I talked about the sticky relationship with my father and about um, the dance we had around him wanting me to stay a little bit longer in Sydney when I was going to date my visa and also my expectations of him before I left and how relating to each other in this sticky attachment way just left both of us on either side unhappy and dissatisfied. Um, so I was wondering if anyone would share... Uh, perhaps their own example of about how relying on others in this way, in an attachment way, has brought about ruin, um, even if it's that's a strong word. But to see how um, yet relating in that way hasn't brought about the happiness that when we first start engaging in it, we think it will. Then I'll move on to the koan that we were given um, that also relates to these verses. In terms of what does a healthy, close relationship look like? Because these verses are showing us what attachment-based relationships look like and the pain that that brings. But Venable gave us the koan of what does a healthy, close relationship look like without attachment? And furthermore, if we're in a sticky relationship, how do we redirect it so that it's actually beneficial? So I don't know if you've been chewing on that koan um, or have chewed on it. I wonder if anyone could share any insights that they have about how to, what does a close relationship without attachment look like, whether you have one or whether you have ideas, um, and how to redirect an attachment, sticky-based relationship so that it's edging closer to what's healthy and beneficial? Well, one of the things that I've thought about with relationship to this is to what extent does it need to be mutual? So in, in the sense of mm. can a healthy, close relationship without attachment exist only from one side? Um and I think to some extent, the I think the relationship itself can't necessarily be, be healthy per se, unless 
both sides are coming to it, not looking for the other person to always meet their needs, to prop up their mm -hmm. ego, to make them feel better about themselves. Um, I, I think it's possible for one side to hold it in a healthy way, but the relationship itself wouldn't necessarily be healthy. Um, and that leads into the question of how we can redirect a sticky relationship so that it's beneficial. Um, in that notion of what can I actually do from my side when the other person has expectations of me, when the other person has, you know, wants to use me to prop up their ego or to feel better about themselves. I, I can just have compassion towards them and kind of, you know, let some of those balls fall uncaught. But it, that question of to what extent can I really benefit them, I can at least not reciprocate. How to redirect a relationship, like in the, in the good way, mm -hmm. like not to be so sticky or so attached? I've been trying... I've been asking myself this question every time I go home. Mm. And uh, it's like, it feels nice when they say, oh, I need you. Oh, <laughs> all the space you left, it's wide open and it's not the same. And that, that. so it feels, it feels nice. It feels like to be needed. But every time I feel that I remind myself, that that is not the real reason for freedom. That freedom, I mean, we do this because we are, it's like a customary way to say I love you, but I love you is not I need you. I love you is I want you to be happy. So if I'm happy here, like training, no, like happy in an ultimate way, not daily happy, perhaps. But so I try to redirect that and to remind myself and them that if we train in this way, we can become freer mm -hmm. and more um, can relate to each other like to really feel happy without needing the other to, to do exactly what they used to do, like leaving the space mm -hmm. for the other to really figure it out what's best for each and one of them. That, what you said about the I need you kind of reminded me of the song that keeps coming up throughout this whole chapter because in high school we did film studies and and we um i can't remember what it's called but the heath ledger movie about they did a shakespeare remake of um 10 things i hate about you yeah and there's the song i want you to want me and those lyrics have just kept coming back again and again as we have these verses like i want you to want me i need you to need me and it's this whole thing about how good it feels it can feel to have people stick to us in that way and to feel special and to feel like we have our place or our people or that. And how, in the end, how unsatisfying that actually is. But to really deeply get that is a different thing than the intellectual knowledge. Um, I think both of you are right in terms of we can act 
from outside and then leave the space open for others to engage with within the framework that we've created, um, knowing that, um, yeah, they'll make their own choices. And we, yeah, to have a fully healthy relationship, I think it takes two. But we can, from our side at least, um, act with integrity and have um, our parameters, um, which invites others to act differently than they have before and gives opportunities they, they might not even have known themselves um, were there. Um, which then leads us into verses uh, 15 and 16, um, which is the start of a larger section about how to abandon attachment, um, where Shantideva explicitly uh, tells us how to um, engage with childish beings. Uh, so 15 and 16, I should flee far away from childish people. <laughs> when they are encountered, though, I should please them by being happy. I should behave well, merely out of courtesy, but not become greatly familiar. In the same way as a bee takes honey from a flower, I should take merely what is necessary for the practice of dharma, but remain unfamiliar, as though I had never seen them before. So at first, this might sound really cold, but it's not. <laughs> um, because it's working from a, ba a foundation of care um, that Venerable Children emphasize again and again. We care, but we're protecting ourselves from becoming under the influence of others who don't share our values or priorities in life. Um, because, and that comes from a perspective that's grounded in an appreciation of our precious human life, of the opportunity that we have. And it's also grounded in an understanding of compassion and of the two, first two truths, really, that you know, we have dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and there are causes for it, and the causes of the afflictions. So we need to protect ourselves and others from the afflictions as much as we can. Um, and so not getting too heavily involved with others that involve us in the afflictions is a kindness both to them and to ourselves. Um, but it's holding it in two ways where we know we might not um, go out with our friends who drink and drug as much as we used to, especially once we've taken the five precepts. But it doesn't mean that we cut them out of our lives. It doesn't mean that we also uh, judge them either. It's just choosing how we're spending our time wisely and hoping also that maybe our influence leads them in a positive direction as well so they can get the happiness that they seek. And uh, with this verse, uh, and we'll refer to a quote that's from the Pratimoksha Sutra in the Bhikshuni, um, in the Bhikshuni Pasada that's recited every two weeks. And it says, just as a bee feeding on flowers extracts only their nectar without spoiling their color or fragrance, so a Bhikshuni, a fully ordained nun, entering a city or village is mindful only of her own behavior deceive it is correct and does not interfere in, the, in others' affairs or inspect what they do or do not do. So this also directs us to not head into judgment. That, you know, these verses from Shantideva about how to abandon attachment are giving us some quite strong advice about, you know, how, what activities to engage in, who to associate with. But it's not from a place of judgment. It's a place so we can really get clarity about how we are acting, how our ethical conduct, how we're using our precious human life, um, and to not 
inspect or judge what others do or do not do, but to really keep our mind focused here um, and hold others with compassion and understanding and the wish to be a benefit. So then we go into verses 17 to 24 that uh, yeah, expound more on the disadvantages of attachment um, and the faults of getting involved with the childish. So, 17, I have much material wealth as well as honor, and many people like me. But nurturing self-importance in this way, I shall be made terrified after death. So, you thoroughly confused mind, by the piling up of whatever objects you are attached to, misery a thousandfold will ensue. Hence, the wise should not be attached, because fear is born from attachment. With a firm mind, understand well that it is the nature of these things to be discarded. Although I have much material wealth, be, am famous, and well spoken of, whatever fame and renown I have amassed has no power to accompany me after death. If there is someone who despises me, what pleasure can I have in being praised? And if there is another who praises me, what displeasure can I have in being despised? If even the conqueror wasn't able to please the various inclinations of different beings, then one need to mention a negative person such as I. Therefore, I should give up the intention to associate with the worldly. They scorn those who have material gain and say bad things about those who do. Oh, they scorn those who have no material gain and say bad things about those who do. How can they, who are by nature so hard to get along with, ever derive any pleasure from me? It has been said by the Tathagatas that one should not befriend the childish, because unless they get their own way, these children are never happy. So these verses kind of link back to verse 5 and 7, where we're seeing how our own desire and attachment can't be satisfied. Um, and here we see that it applies to others as well, and particularly that our efforts to try and please them will be endless. Um, so really, what are we spending our time on? Um, yeah, then we'll try and affirm that, you know, care about sentient beings deeply, but don't expect that they're always gonna be happy with us. And don't try to, don't spend your whole life trying to make them happy with you. Um, and she asks us the question, you know, what is more important, working with our afflictions or running around trying to make others happy with us. Um, give up attachment. And I can see just you know, how I move throughout the day that there, the way that I might prioritize certain tasks or the way that I say things, or there's still a lot there that is caught up in wanting others to be pleased with me, trying to avoid criticism, to avoid bad reputation, um, yeah, and I can see that and work against it, and it's going to be a long-haul job because it's, it's the eight worldly concerns have been the fabric of my life for so long. Um, but these verses really encourage us to get more clear so that we can apply the antidotes more consistently with more clarity. And here I wanted to touch on um, the interesting point that Venerable Kadra also brought up in the weekend retreat we just had about how attachment leads to fear. Because um, fear isn't one of the 51 mental factors that's often mentioned in the list that we get. But 
the prevalence of anxiety and panic um, in our in our society is that you know fear is a big affliction that many people have to work with. So how do we relate to it? How do we understand it? Um, yeah, and here Shantideva is very clearly telling us that fear is born from attachment. So therefore, the wise don't get attached. Um, yeah. And so when we see our own anxiety and fear, we can uh, remind ourselves to look deeper and see what attachments are there driving that anxiety or fear, no matter how small level or large level it is. Um, and to see if we can let go of the tight grip or that pull that we're trying to get something, um, whether we're fearing getting running into something that we don't want, fearing losing something that we have or that we want. Um, and just see fear clearly for what it is. Um, I could, I didn't have time to find the exact quote, but it really hit me when I was reading Gellert Grimbush's commentary to this. And we have in the library, he's got a, a whole book on each chapter, um, and they're beautiful commentaries. They're like tr a polished transcript, so it really feels like he's speaking to you. But he said it in a very eloquent way that wherever there's attachment, there will be fear. Um, and it, it just hit me quite strongly um, at that time reading that in terms of, wow, like fear for me is like a strong word. But, you know, wherever there's attachment, there's going to be fear. Losing what, we, losing what we have or not getting what we want. And that's certainly not a mind state that I want to have. So if I don't want that fear, then I need to uh, work against the attachment. That, and that attachment is much more comfortable than the fear that comes with it. Um, but to see how they're related and to understand that more, I think, I hope I'll be more inclined to apply the antidotes to the attachment through understanding of the disadvantages of fear that I'll experience if I don't. Yeah. So in the last verses that we'll look at here from 25 to 37, really look at the benefits of relying on isolation or solitude. And it looks at it from different perspectives in terms of how by relying on solitude or isolation, there is benefits in terms of cultivating conducive companions, having good places to live, conducive livelihood, and conducive discernment about what's important and what's not. So I'll read verses 25 to 28. So, when shall I come to dwell in forests amongst the deer, the birds, and the trees, that say nothing unpleasant and are delightful to associate with. When dwelling in caves, in empty shrines, and at the feet of trees, when shall I not look back and be without attachment? When shall I come to dwell in places not clung to as mine, which are by nature wide and open, and where I may behave as I wish without attachment? When shall I come to live without fear, having just an alms bowl and a few odd things, wearing clothes not wanted by anyone, and not even having to hide this body. So that all sounds very nice. <laughs> and right away, reading these verses, Venerable kind of got out the hammer and wanted to say, you know, needing to look at this within context in terms of dispelling romantic notions about running off into a cave before we've actually done the work where we could take advantage of the situation. Um, yeah, because she said that in order to gain spiritual realizations, there's so much work that we have to do beforehand. Otherwise, going off 
to live in the forest is just another trip where it looks good, but what are we doing when we're there? How uncontrolled or controlled is our mind? Um, and what are our, what are our expectations? Um, yeah, what are we looking for out of the whole project? Is it to look good? Or is it to really go deeply into our practice? And yeah, how we created the foundation in order for those physical circumstances to bear the fruit that we're seeking. Um, otherwise, yeah, we're not necessarily going to be changing our mind. Um, yeah. And then also to, and in terms of that preparation, to see that a lot of that preparation is purification and the generation of merit. And that's where service comes in. And that's the fabric of our life here at the monastery where um, you know, a lot of our day, six hours of our day in regular schedule is dedicated towards service. And that's, um, and to see that, um, she encourages us to really see that as preparation for going into more focused, deep, uh, meditation um, and to, to not discard activities such as cleaning toilets or ordering things online or the website or various things that might just seem like ordinary tasks that um, aren't helping us but to really see that as being the, fa the fabric from which we can create the causes and conditions to enter into retreat and for it to bear fruit um, yeah and to relate that back to that we're offering service to sentient beings, to again hold uh, sentient beings with a variety of perspectives so that it's rich and, and it's, it's fluid so we can um, see them as objects of compassion, see them as kind companions, to see them as childish sentient beings we also want to be careful of and cultivate wise relationships with. And when we're doing our service, to see them as a field of offering, a field of merit, uh, field of benefit. Um, yeah. So I was curious, um, knowing that these verses specifically on going off into retreat um, has sparked others to reflect that, you know, yeah, that's either what they came in wanting to do or that might still be an aspiration and, and things aren't necessarily clear about, you know, when will be the right time or how. Yeah. So I was curious in terms of where are people in terms of feeling that they're ready to go off into a cave or wanting, feeling that they need to make, uh, create more causes for the fabric of that, diving into service or feeling overwhelmed by it? How, how have you worked with your expectations of where you'd like to be, where you find, you find where you are right now, and also uh, how life at the Abbey um, with the emphasis on service lands for you in terms of creating those causes? Um, that's loud. I just got back <laughs> from my five day, you know, quote unquote retreat. And um, I, I didn't really see it as a retreat, but I think I thought it could be. Um, I came out of the retreat thinking, wow, it's, it really does take a lot of merit and purification to even be alone and focused on practice and meditation just for five days. Um, because at the end of the five days, I was kind of 
wandering around and not sure what to do with myself. So, yeah. You have created the discipline beforehand to use that time well to really go deeply into the practice and to know what to do. When I talk to people, sometimes there's like this romantic romantic idea that you mentioned that going on retreat on your own is like, oh, you're going to be almost levitating. <laughs> but it's not like that. It's It's really difficult. I think... My perspective now is that I will have to create a lot of merit in order to do that. Because when I'm here, you ask how is the combination of how we use our time here at the Abbey. And I think here it's like a very wise combination of time because we have a good time to rest, a good time to do offering service, which is really when I really work hard with my mind. When I get in contact with all these objects, either of attachment or aversion. Mm -hmm. And uh, also to really be happy not doing exactly what I wanted to do that day, but to just do what is needed. needed. What I'm asked to to do, I think that's good for um, for the self-centeredness to yeah. decrease it a little bit. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think many of us in conversations I've had, many of us would agree that the service is where what we've contemplated on the cushion really has to come into action, and we see how good a grip we have on the antidotes um, through coming into contact with objects and often, for me, people um, and see where my attachment or aversion comes into play. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah, this idea of going into solitude has been really attractive to me for a very long time. Um, but I've seen that when I've um, been alone and you know, with the intention to focus more on practice, I'm still very much driven by attachment and what I want, when I want it, how I want it. So I could still be reading a Dharma book, still meditating, but I'm doing it in a way that's comfortable. Mm -hmm. And being at the Abbey really shows me um, my mind and pushes up against that attachment. And so I think for me, it's so important now to um, really learn to work with others, subdue my own mind, especially within offering service time, um, and to keep asking myself, why do I want to be in solitude? Is it because it's more comfortable? Is it because I like it? Mm. If it's any of those reasons, I'm not ready. <laughs> so I really want to just keep asking myself that and, and, Hopefully, at some point, when I can ask myself and the authentic responses, because I really want to go deeper in practice, because um, I want to cultivate good qualities, and I see that as conducive, and I have the discipline to do it, then at that time, it will be beneficial, but not until then. Very well said. 
Ja. Yeah, because when we're when we're on our own, we can construct things exactly how we want, and then complacency can set in. Whereas if, if the idea of mental isolation is we're trying to isolate isolate ourselves from the afflictions, then being in contact with others can be helpful in terms of showing us what we still have the propensity for, how easily, personally speaking, the ignorance, anger, attachment, jealousy, pride is triggered. Um, yeah. So then uh, we'll continue with verses 29 to 32. Looking at overcoming attachment to the body, um, our own bodies, and then also seeing the futility of clinging to the bodies of others. So, having departed to the cemeteries, when shall I come to understand that this body of mine and the skeletons of others are equal in being subject to decay? Then, because of its odor, not even the foxes will come close to this body of mine, for this is what, for this is what will become of it. Although this body arose as one thing, the bones and flesh with which it was created will break up and separate. How much more so will friends and others? At birth I was born alone, and at death too I shall die alone. As this pain cannot be shared by others, what use are obstacle-making friends? And so the issue here, the idea trying to be conveyed is not to not have any friends. Again, it comes back to that idea of how do we cultivate healthy relationships? Um, yeah, and, and how do we reduce our attachment um, so that at our own death, and at the de- where we will have to separate from our own body and from others, or at the death of others, well, they will leave us, that we won't be so stricken with our grief. Um, yeah, but can see it as just part of the bigger picture um, of what samsara is. And that bigger picture is addressed in verse um, 33 and 34. 33 reading, In the same way as travelers on a highway leave one place and reach another, likewise those traveling on the path of conditioned existence leave one birth and reach another. So this uh, uses the analogy of um, our body just being a guest house that we stay temporarily in. And given that, we have to separate from our body, our possessions, our wealth, friends and family, and all of our identities, what is important in life? Um, And this helps us reduce uh, this perspective uh, of multiple lifetimes, of the relatively short time we actually have to spend with others that we're currently surrounded with. It helps us reduce our afflictions both here and now, but also in the future in terms of here and now being like, you know, if we're going to be separated soon, you know, is it important that I get what I want, that I win this argument? Um, Very short-term immediate benefit in terms of like, wow, I really don't have to get my own way or voice my opinion here. I can be much more flexible and accommodating. But also the bigger picture of not seeing that that person is going to be the source of my happiness and their death or our separation doesn't have to be the source of my ongoing misery because we've been born and, and died multiple times. We've been together before and separated. We didn't even know each other in other lifetimes. Um, the most important thing is to work to 
uh, create the causes so that we don't have to keep being reborn in these unsatisfactory conditions. Um, leading us to verse 34. Until the time comes for this body to be supported by full pole bearers, while the worldly stand around stricken with grief, until then I shall retire to the forest. And here, retiring to the forest, Venerable directed us to not take it literally, um, but to mean living a more secluded life so we can focus on our practice. Um, so again, this comes back to uh, what we talked about at the beginning in terms of what choices are we make about guarding our senses or um, the friends and family that we're involved in, the things we're passing our time with. How are we using a precious human life and what causes are we creating for a string of precious human lives in the future? Um, are we using our time well? Um, yeah. And uh, to link this back again to the idea of uh, bodhicitta um, and living our life in accordance with values that um, are deeply meaningful to us. Um, yeah, Venable asked, do we want do we just want a big funeral funeral party or do we want to have lived our life with bodhicitta in terms of the imagery of our body being supported by four pole bearers going to a big funeral procession? Um, do we want all that praise, reputation, pomp, and circumstance? Or are we content? Can we be content to live a more simple, uh, focused life that will um bring much more positive, meaningful fruit, both in the here and now and in the future lives. So the last three verses kind of bring this to a close, um, really looking at the benefits of isolation um, and solitude, um, that there'll be no torment of mourning. Um, the virtuous side of one's life doesn't deteriorate but flourishes. And we can have this very strong resolve to really um, think as reasonable to dwell in physical and mental isolation. So verse 35 to 37. Befriending no one and begrudging no one, my body will dwell alone in solitude. If I am already counted as dead, then I, when I die there will be no mourners. And as there will be no one around to disturb me with their mourning, thus there will be no one to distract me from my recollection of the Buddha. Therefore I shall dwell alone, happy and contented with few difficulties, in very joyful and beautiful forests, pacifying all distractions. So what uh, hit me looking at my notes was uh, the four words that uh, Venerable followed in her commentary to this, being, dispel all romantic notions. And relating this back to what these verses really mean around um, befriending no one, begrudging no one, um, no one being around to disturb us with their mourning and, and dwelling alone, peaceful, free of distractions. Uh, she said this is about being comfortable in our own company, being our own friend, not needing others to constantly tell us that we're worthy or good or have good qualities, to tell us what to do not feeling that we have to run around fulfilling all these social obligations that just waste our time, not needing to go online to amuse ourselves because our practice is actually, our practice and study is interesting enough on its own, 
um, yeah, to not be preoccupied with the news, needing to know what's going on in every single country. Um, you know, we want to stay engaged to a certain extent, but as to an extent that's beneficial, that aids our practice, aids our understanding of dukkha, aids our generation of compassion and love, but no more than that. Because um, then we need to practice generating those states of mind. Um, yeah. And again, to uh, dispel the notion as well that this idea of you know befriending no one, begrudging no one, it doesn't mean that we're not having any friends or that we don't care. It's just not getting involved to an extent that's harmful to ourselves or others. Um, not getting in sticky relationships, coming back to the idea of I want you to want me, where um, we get into codependency or we hook others so that we're in these relationships where we're f- our ego is fueled by how others rely upon us because it feels good. Um, but rather to cultivate that mental isolation where we're isolating ourselves from the afflictions, we're not looking outside of ourselves for happiness or peace or meaning and purpose, but rather are looking um, inwards to develop positive states of mind, of compassion, love, bodhicitta. And then when we do look outwards, we're seeing other sentient beings as those we wish to benefit, um, those who have been very kind to us, those who are afflicted just as we are and actually need help. But until we have the inner resources of love, compassion, wisdom, to know that our ability to help them right now is limited. And therefore we do need to appropriately take the time to cultivate those qualities before we can fully uh, immerse ourselves in being of benefit. Um, And that's where the physical isolation can also come in to a certain degree. Um, Yeah. So that is what I have to offer today. Um, (laughs) uh, Thank you very much. Um, so maybe we'll just pause uh, here for a few moments of digestion meditation before we do our prayers Um, reflecting on coming back to where Venable left off about cultivating this joy of isolation what does isolation mental and physical mean to you specifically in the context of being a bodhisattva in training where our goal is to be a Buddha who has spontaneous activity that is constantly engaged with benefiting others? And how can you take steps to cultivate more, specifically mental isolation, to protect yourself and others from the pain of the afflictions? So you can have more and more mental space to be of benefit. 